So crisis intervention and telehealth. To start off, my name is Jean Lundquist. I am a licensed clinical social worker and implementation specialist with the Public Mental Health Partnership between DMH and UCLA. I previously had a crisis intervention over the phone training that I linked, I believe, in the registration um, because it utilized a very specific model, uh, the Roberts seven stage model for assessments and treatments during crisis. We also focused on uh, crises related to suicidal thoughts, paranoia, a lot of pieces on assessment and the interventions were focused on safety planning and DBT distress tolerance skills. Today, we're going to focus again on rapport building because there's always room to grow in that area. Um, but we're also going to have interventions that can be used in telehealth and in person because as we know, many crises can take shape and we have to go out into the field to respond to them directly. Um, we'll be focusing primarily on de-escalation techniques to use with the population that is under the influence of methamphetamines and experiences psychosis, which I know can be more common than not with a lot of the clients that we interact with. Uh, we'll also be discussing panic attacks and evidence-based interventions to help through crises related to panic attacks. These two topics were chosen directly based on feedback from the last training and from feedback that providers have given us so some learning objectives for today. We will be reviewing rapport building practices for telehealth as well as evidence-based practices for symptoms based on the de-escalation and also panic attacks. And then we're also going to be trying to talk about practices of reflection to utilize with clients after the crisis is resolved so that we can help to empower them to build upon their natural strength and skills and hopefully break the cycle of crisis down a little further. So I know that many of us thought that COVID would not be having as major of an impact this late in the year, but 2020 is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen that it's still impacting clients. There has been some recent research that has come out discussing the impact on one's mental health from increases in anxiety, sleep disturbances like insomnia to sleeping too much, and an increase in substance use. We also know that it can worsen current conditions of pre-existing mental illness. We as clinicians have to help to troubleshoot negative thought processes that this pandemic can create from overgeneralizations to exaggerated beliefs in so many different directions. With the most important goal underneath these discussions being that we help our clients feel somewhat safe and secure in a time where we have all struggled at one point or another to maintain these sentiments. COVID also diminishes social interactions. Isolation is a huge concern for many. Activity has changed and developing an alternative routine is something that many have grappled with and will continue to do so as winter comes into full force and numbers of COVID are beginning to rise again. 
Coping strategies that were previously accessible, like in-person groups and meetings, have had to change to online platforms. Places of socialization or opportunities are no longer available. We have to be creative with coping skills in the pandemic. And I want to take a pause here because I know that you guys know a lot of these things already. And I wanted to open up and ask if anyone would like to write in the chat or unmute themselves and share any changes they've noticed with their clients because we've had quite a bit of time since the pandemic started. So if we've noticed shifts and then returning to a new normal, as they say, um, and also, what adaptations have you helped your clients make to adapt to COVID-19? Hey, Jean, I'd be happy to share. I know the clients that I work with uh, tend to be um, higher functioning. However, I have been noticing this, particularly in the last couple months, that everyone's motivation has really just hit this hit a wall. <laughs> um, that seems to be consistent of just really struggling for people to have motivation like before they were adapting well. And, and I, I think I've experienced this for myself as well. Like there's that initial adaptation to COVID and things were going, you know, we were making it work. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's been a long time now <laughs> and, and yeah just hitting that wall uh I, i've noticed thank you david for sharing i also see some things in the chat a lot of things in the chat thank you guys um g haley says increased distrust from medical professionals and government agencies yes this stuff isn't great for our clients that are already struggle with psychosis, sleeping problems, fears about leaving home, lack of motivation, again, especially in children, feeling disconnected from the outside world and disengaged, uh, not as many meaningful activities to socialize, feeling hopeless, paranoia and agitation has increased, more outdoor activities to get them space and fresh air. That's a great recommendation, Shaylin. Anita talks about increased anxiety, paranoia, loneliness, and it's harder for low-functioning clients who are experiencing more paranoia. I think those are all really good things to share as we have to, these are new realities that we're working with with our clients. And there aren't easy solutions, but there are solutions to be found. And we can ride those waves of low motivation and try to find a way through to build purpose in very small activities that we usually wouldn't find purpose in. I have learned to cook and I never thought I would learn to cook <laughs> because there's nothing to do um, safely a lot of the time. Oh, Anita also talks about positivity with enjoying virtual appointments. Yes, that's wonderful. We're gonna to touch on that some more. So thank you guys all for sharing. I appreciate all this discussion. I know you're all very busy, so I really appreciate it. So for serious mental illness, there are well-studied barriers to engagement that some of you just touched upon with the paranoia. There's low insight, low motivation, and high skepticism. Um, which we've seen if we're doing outreach and engagement or even beginning treatment with a client or maintaining treatment with a client. 
sometimes a lot of these things overlap with psychosis, as a lot of you have seen. There's that negative symptom of low motivation or abolition, skepticism, a lot related to paranoia, and low insight is common for many, even outside of the seriously mentally ill population. There are institutional barriers that we have had to address, an overall lack of technology, uh, affordability for clients to access technology, and clinicians' access to technology is often dependent on their program and their program funding. We have had expansions for telehealth, where there's lots of guidelines that we have on our PMHP website, and also Medicare and Medi-Cal have allowed for a lot of telehealth procedures to be acceptable for billing in the interim. So it's a fine balance, as always, especially with the lack of training for these populations as well. But hopefully our PMHP website can help with a little of those gaps. And, you know, you always have access to us as well to meet and discuss things. So teletherapy has been shown as equivalent for the majority of mental health populations, but the seriously mentally ill population is a subgroup that requires greater research and support that we've just discussed. But a positive thing, there was a recent study at an outpatient psychiatric clinic in Northern Texas that showed that the seriously SMI, seriously mentally ill population participated just as much over telehealth and were equivalent to the non-SMI population. So it's 52% participated versus 48% non-SMI participated. So that's really good news that this is possible. And I just want that to be a reminder because I know not all of our clients are able to adapt to these changes, but that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There was also a study in 2019 where patients with serious mental illness received electronic messaging, and they had a 25% decrease in hospitalizations and even shorter stays if they were admitted to the hospital. They were less likely to be readmitted if they had follow-up teletherapy. And I say this all to remember the powerful things you are doing that can seem tedious and frustrating with technology, but they are still having a major impact. So another question for you guys, before we go into this, what has helped you build rapport over the phone and video with your clients during this transition? Yeah, Mimi said we have clients that refuse services through telehealth. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's definitely going to happen. Um, but hopefully that there's safety protocols and procedures through your agency where you can meet socially distant and still engage if possible um, with your team. But that's a, a really important point to touch on as well. Savannah says it's been tough. Meet them at least once in person and then over the phone is best in my experience. So a balance that that makes a lot of sense as well. So hopefully we can expand upon your wheelhouse just a little bit with rapport building and telehealth as this is something that it seems is going to be part of our world for a while longer. I'm not going to go over each of these directly, but please write messages in the chat for any tips you've learned or would like to discuss further. I know that not all of our clients have access to a computer, but we do want to gain the knowledge base for being able to work through IT issues with them. 
learning to reset a router if they have access to that, checking audio and video settings on their computer. If they have a phone, knowing which provider they have and making sure they're up to date on payment. I know a lot of clients have those free cell phones through California Lifeline. And I was on a meeting today where they said that Safety Link was the one that had the best deal for clients and the best service. So that's a fun tidbit I learned today. Um, they've also suspended renewals, California Lifeline, until after November 30th, which is very helpful as I know a lot of the time they require documents and ID and things like that. Sometimes we may become a coach more than a therapist when working through these technological aspects, and we may have to do them in person to get some buy-in to do these practices. Um, hopefully we can assess the environment to see how they can meet with some privacy, whether it be in a car or um, outside somewhere where they have a safe space to meet. That's really important when figuring out how they are going to meet with you. There may be some benefits to the home setting when we're trying to construct new coping skills. They can derive things from their immediate environment. Uh, you can have a greater incorporation of music and animals <laughs> if they have access to either of those things or they just want to share those things with you, that is a great rapport building tool. Um, and this is all in line with what their preferences are for meeting and how we continue to highlight their sense of choice and control. We want to give opportunities for the client to speak or assert control over the conversation whenever possible as interruption or speaking over is even more awkward over <laughs> telehealth. <laughs> and last but not least is humor. If you are building rapport or have built rapport, humor is a wonderful thing to utilize, of course, always appropriately with your client, but it truly helps through these difficult, strange times with telehealth. And I'm just checking the chat. Liz says, I try to do telehealth versus phone as much as possible. It really seems to promote engagement. Most of them like it. I work with Tay. Yeah, I've definitely seen... The, the Tay population or younger population is um, so far much more adaptable to telehealth rather than our, our older clients, but I'm sure that each of you have different success stories there. Um, Anita says our psychiatrist builds rapport by showing the clients around their room, paintings, that's great. Yeah, so you can build rapport with what's in your room, but also being mindful of what's in your room, right, too, and making sure that nothing is triggering to clients, but it sounds like there's just some lovely paintings, which is wonderful. I have a flamingo behind me. <laughs> so thank you guys for sharing all that. Okay, from that last side, you saw the tip of going at their pace, which really aligns with meeting the client where they're at, which we all know and has been drummed into us so much. But there are also some active listening skills that can be utilized within that framework that we can talk about a little more. So reflective statements help us to clarify what the client is saying, but also demonstrates that we are actively listening to the conversation, even saying, am I hearing you right? And that your girlfriend wasn't available to you when you wanted to talk to her. Just simple statements reflecting back that you're both on the same page, that you're understanding what the client is saying, and they feel heard in turn. In that same vein is emotional labeling. So if a client isn't great at identifying what they're feeling, 
which happens a lot when we're elevated in mood or in a state of crisis. This practice may be of service to the client. We simply attempt to identify what they are feeling and relay it back to them. The goal being that labeling, let's say, the fear that they feel. We interrupt the brain's processes that are focused on generating that fear, the amygdala in this case, and we instead can begin to focus on generating feelings of safety instead. Feelings have more power when they're unnamed or feel unknown. Even if you misidentify the emotion, it shows that you are trying to understand them. So let's say you sound fearful of the pandemic. Is that fair to say? So it's both reflective, but also hones in on more emotions than just the overall scenario. And both of these examples are open-ended in nature. We're not assuming that we know what the client is feeling or what has happened based on their past experiences or current presentation. They are guiding us to understand what is happening in real time through these open-ended questions. Empathy is the building block upon which rapport and trust are built. It's our continued efforts to understand our clients and validate their experiences. A tool we don't often think of in regards to empathy is our tone. But for telehealth, our tone is really magnified in importance, especially if we're just on the phone. Tone indicates attitude and genuineness through inflection and pitch. Tone can express emotion, demeanor, sincerity, and tone can influence the client's perception of the meaning of what you are saying. Really, the way you say it can be far more important than just the content alone. A note on accepting silence, we want to ensure that we don't rush the conversation, even in the midst of a crisis. The client won't feel hurt. Allowing them to vent and discuss the situation, we listen and we sit in that silence if that is what is needed at the time. During those moments of silence, our body language can indicate a level of engagement if they're on video. We can lean closer to the camera. We can nod in agreement or acknowledgement. We can use hand gestures to emphasize or punctuate our discussion. And for the, tone, for the phone, excuse me, we try to do that with our tone and with our words, with reflective statements showing that we're paying attention. I don't know enough about Will Rogers, but there is a lovely beach in Santa Monica that he is named after. He's a Native American actor. And this is just a really poignant quote that reinforces the simplicity underlying what we do with our clients in crisis. We may not have the best interventions at hand every time or be in the best headspace, but the intention we keep and hold dear to us can guide us through and shines brighter. So in times of crisis, people want to know that you care more than they care what you know. So before we dive into interventions for a crisis, let's remember the characteristics of a crisis. So it elicits an intense emotional response that a lot of the time can be at an irrational level in the sense that it's not at a rational or thinking level. And it's in response to an overwhelming situation. The situation has usually occurred in the past 24 to 48 hours, 
and the event is seen as a threat to one's psychological, emotional, and or physical well-being. Whether or not a situation becomes a crisis depends on the perception and the experience of the individual. Crisis can stem from confronting situations not previously encountered, or it can be stirred by feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and powerlessness from a situation like major loss or even an interaction that hurt them with a friend or significant other, or even one's feelings about their current mental health. There may be a perceived lack of social support or a true lack of social support. What changes to heighten the crisis to a full-fledged crisis is their inability to cope. So if they don't have that social support or don't think they can access it, that's one piece of that, not feeling able to cope. The other piece is not being able to engage in coping skills in the moment due to a high state of negative emotional arousal. And crisis stimulates that. So once the coping and support is found to be inadequate, the crisis emerges in full force. And we get this tunnel vision, right? Where there's no longer a future oriented, flexible, or positive attitude. There's only now. And that now is usually negative, and often rigid. All right. So the first set of interventions that we're going to discuss when talking about a crisis is in regards to the agitation and aggression that we often see with methamphetamine induced psychosis. The earliest studied observational views from research of amphetamine psychosis described predominant symptoms like paranoid thoughts, ideas of reference, which are based on real events that are internalized personally, like the newspaper has messages just for me in them, Uh, delusions of persecution and auditory and visual hallucinations. From this slide, you can see what presents as predominantly and less dominantly according to research when encountering methamphetamine-induced psychosis. For the less dominant, bizarre delusions are usually beliefs that aren't based in reality, i.e. there is a microchip implanted in my brain. Negative symptoms range from that lack of motivation to limited speech output, not wanting to socialize, not feeling pleasure from things, and that blunted affect where there's diminished facial expression and emotion. So the time period of methamphetamine-induced psychosis usually lasts a few hours to a few days. When we're working with those that have both substance use and psychosis, we can often notice a difference in, in symptoms when someone is on meth versus when they are not. I had a client that was a lovely curmudgeon at baseline. He heard voices and had different beliefs about normal events than you or I would interpret, but he was never violent. He would tell you like it was and speak his mind. He had a short temper for nonsense. But when he got high on meth, he became very paranoid and unfortunately very racist. And those were our tells for that he was high, which was 
very important and is important because we want to make sure if our client is taking any medications for their physical and or mental health, we want to make sure that they can keep taking them. It's harder to tell any of this if we're on the phone with them. We can't keep a lookout to see if they're fidgeting more, if they're having trouble sitting still, not being able to focus on the conversation, they're looking around or over their shoulder because of paranoia, but we still have some clues to go off of. We have their ability to have a conversation with us. And sadly, for a lot of those that are under the influence of meth, there is a lower level of distress tolerance for the conversation or frankly, for any intervention. Each person is different, but it's good to gather what their baseline is for psychosis and note the impact that meth has on their symptoms so that we can help accordingly in and out of those crises in the future if relapse occurs. As, as we know, recovery can sometimes be a long road. I think it's important to note that there is no clear guidance for how we as clinicians and providers navigate this. We are in a very unique field of care. Research on this emphasizes presentation to the emergency room, to forensic settings, and is really not, uh, there's not a lot on street-based or community-based interactions, which is what most of us are dealing with in public mental health. That doesn't mean there is nothing we can do but I think it's important to validate that we are doing the best that we can with what we have. We are not enforcers of medicine or restraint, which are the primary methods of dealing with the aftermath of methamphetamine-induced psychosis. The de-escalation techniques that we're going to review today are from the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry. They had a Project Beta de-escalation workgroup. And it wasn't even specifically for those with methamphetamine-induced psychosis, but it was for agitated patients that presented to the emergency room, and they were trying to create greater alternatives than using force or injectables to outrightly manage agitation and aggression. These recommendations can be attempted to be used via telehealth if you have a tech-savvy client but as we know with a lot of crises, we often have to go out to a location to rectify the situation. So the suggestions are adaptable to both scenarios. Lastly, please, please adhere to your safety policy and procedures when interacting with these scenarios. If you know the client is high and is very aggressive and you need to call law enforcement or an ambulance, do not hesitate to do so. We all develop in the field over time a pretty good gut instinct or intuition for when things are going awry and when we need to get backup or reinforcements for the safety of not just ourselves, but also the client. Okay, so de-escalation and active listening. So let's say you're having a buddy system of going out to see this client when there's a crisis involving meth and psychosis. If that's the case, you want to make sure that only one person is talking to the client at a time. The goal being that whoever makes contact first, you're the designated talker. The other person is the one that's on the lookout and assessing the environment and making that phone call if you need backup. 
too many people talking is confusing without agitation, aggression, or meth use. If you are on the phone or in person with a client, you want short sentences with simple vocabulary, no clinical jargon. You don't want to use these words like agitation or aggression. Instead, you're trying to identify their feelings of anger or frustration. There must be a level of patience to have the client process what you have said to them before providing additional information. Trying to remember to take a pause after each sentence. Repetition in speech is useful here as there are limits in the ability to process information when agitated and angry and compound that with drug use is even more difficult. Repeating is important to reinforce limits, offer choices, or propose alternatives, which we'll talk about more later on. All with the goal of identifying their wants and feelings and working within that framework when it is possible and when it's safe to do so. For example, let me know if I'm hearing you right. You're angry because someone stole your backpack and now you want to leave this housing because you don't feel safe. Some other short sentences we could say are, where do you want to go? Is there any way you can feel safe without leaving your housing? Or that sounds really frustrating. And I want to see if I could stop by tomorrow or the next day when you come down a little bit so that I can help you look for your backpack. These are just examples that could be broken down even further to shorter sentences. And they're all within the lens of, patience, pausing, and active listening. If you are in person, body language is extremely important. We have to try to show that we are calm and have open body language. We're not folding our arms or turning away. We are interested in what is happening with the client. Our body language has to be congruent with your speech. If you are communicating empathy and understanding of their anger, you must also show that. Your hands are to be visible, not clenched. We don't want them to think that we have a weapon. They're not in our pockets. Uh, we're not facing the client head on. Uh, it's best if we're at an angle with our knees slightly bent or even at their level. If they're sitting down, you can sit down too from a safe distance away to communicate reciprocity. Authenticity is of the utmost importance in de-escalation. If the client senses that you don't want to be there, that you're frustrated, overwhelmed, or scared, this can sometimes elevate to greater provocation. That is not to say it's an end-all be-all rule here. It's not our fault if they misinterpret our emotions or our speech, as this can happen a lot under the influence. It's more so that we continue to reinforce that we want to help them feel safe and get through this crisis. Going back to identifying wants and feelings, let's have another example. They may feel that the bugs are crawling on their skin, right? Those tactile hallucinations we often see with methamphetamine. They feel like they're going to jump out of their skin and they're freaking out. This may be a good time to try to walk with them outside, socially distance and with masks on if they'll wear one. 
when my clients relapsed and had all this pent up anger and frustration and paranoia, I found that walking was extremely helpful. The key being that you find an area with not a lot of people around. There's a colorful alleyway or an empty parking lot or even the driveway where they can pace back and forth. These are great places to walk off some of this agitation. If they're not open to this and they're starting to scratch at themselves, which can happen, we want to encourage them to try to sit on their hands and rock their body back and forth. We can even do it with them. We can reinforce once again that we're trying to help them feel safe here and scratching their skin will require medical attention eventually that we know they want to avoid. So what do they want? What is the crisis? What solution do they want? We can ask, what can I do to help you feel safe right now? Or what do you want in this moment to feel better? I may not be able to provide it or help you achieve it, but I want to know what is important to you right now. De-escalation and Miller's Law. This is a really grounding recommendation. And if you've been to any of our trainings, we love grounding. <laughs> it reinforces empathy and helps us to shift our perspective. Following Miller's Law means you're trying to understand. And by doing so, you are less judgmental because we all have judgments. They're part of being human. We have our own frame of reference and understanding and we're trying to shift to understand theirs and identify it as valid. I had a client that would come back to the crisis house time and again, and she was often high on methamphetamines. And she always felt that baseline she was working for Donald Trump. But when she was having both the psychosis that was exacerbated by the meth use, she felt that she had a bomb inside of her that could explode at any moment. And imagining how stressful that must be to have such an intense job and the fear that one could experience with having a bomb inside of them. We aren't agreeing that this is in fact our reality to gather with the client and expanding upon it but we are identifying the feelings underneath and validating the experiences of, that, of those emotions. Sometimes it isn't easy to validate and imagine it to be true. Sometimes our own emotions or countertransference get in the way. And I think this is important to talk about because we interact with a lot of clients. We have very stressful jobs sometimes. And it's important to talk about the good examples and the bad examples of crisis. So here's mine. <laughs> I had a client that kept getting high in our residential facility, causing the rest of the clients to feel fearful because of his aggression and property destruction that he displayed when he was under the influence of meth. He was always very apologetic and a very sweet gentleman at baseline, and he just was not ready to change his meth use. One day, he got high and started walking on the roof because other clients had snuck onto the roof, and they didn't get in trouble, and he wants to be on the roof too, and if they can, so can he. And instead of trying to validate his emotions of wanting to feel included with others 
or feeling like the odd one out because he was getting in trouble for the property destruction or for being aggressive to other clients. He was feeling badly about himself. He wasn't able to communicate it in any other way in that moment. And I responded by just telling him to get off the roof. And that was not very effective. I asked nicely and he swore and called me names and wished me dead. And all I felt was how tiring this was. And I will say it till I'm blue in the face. My program director always reminded me, remember how exhausting it must be to be that person day in and day out. And that has really always helped me to maintain my empathy of each individual's experience, no matter the agitation or aggression. There's always a person under that, a person that wants to feel safe, sheltered, and cared for. So agitation does not always mean aggression, but when it does, it's important to understand the kind that we see. This classification is not strictly for those high on methamphetamines, but it's useful for clients that present as aggressive, under the influence of drugs and alcohol, or not under the influence. Types of aggression have been identified by martial arts instructors, by correctional facilities, and by researchers like Moyer, who came out with eight different types in 1968. You can look up if that interests you. For the purposes of today, we're just focusing on a few types of aggression as these can be subject to discussion and debate and based on population and so much more. Instrumental aggression is used by those that have found they can get what they want through violence or threats of violence. We want to especially maintain boundaries in these scenarios so that we don't give clients what they want in response to threats of violence or violence. We instead want to say that we take these threats seriously and we have to tediously work through this type of aggression to ensure that a tariff does not need to be filed and if this aggression can be resolved in other ways. If a client is going to kill his roommate if he doesn't give him a cigarette, we can offer choices like a snack a beverage, or making a primary care appointment to discuss a nicotine patch, but we don't do violence. This is an opportunity to talk about how their words are powerful and how you take what they say seriously. Fear-driven aggression is different than the sort of fear that can lead to self-defense. This client wants to avoid being hurt and may attack someone to prevent someone from hurting them. You want to give this fearful client plenty of space. We don't want to enhance their feeling of being threatened as this will feed into the client's belief that they're going to be hurt. De-escalation involves matching the client's pace until they begin to focus on what is being said rather than the fear. So if the client is repeating and fearful and says, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, you can counter with the same repetition by saying, you're safe here, you're safe here. Irritable aggression comes in two forms. The first is the client who has had their boundaries violated. Someone has cheated them, humiliated them, otherwise emotionally wounded them. They're angry and they're trying to regain a sense of self-worth and integrity. This client wants to be heard and have their feelings validated. 
you may get resistance here, even with trying to validate. They may say that nobody understands what they're going through. And the response is that that may be right, but that you're trying to understand and you're trying to be there for them. The second form of irritable aggression occurs in people that are chronically angry at the world. And oftentimes, unfortunately, they may be looking for an excuse to quote unquote, go off. There's no outright reason for this anger. There is constant pressure from their worldview that is weighed down by this chronic anger. There can be unrealistic or erratic demands of your team as a result of this chronic anger. And if they're not met, they may result in aggressive behavior like property destruction. The goal here is that you maintain composure. Unfortunately, they may be looking to get an emotional response from you and you showing defensiveness or fear feeds this aggression. That said, if a client throws a chair your way, I would be startled, I would dodge, and I would call for backup immediately. You do not have to tough these scenarios out. It's not your fault if you show emotion. The goal over time is that we learn to manage our reactivity in these situations when possible. So we don't have them to go off something further with their aggression. In all scenarios of aggression, we want to try to give the client choices other than violence to help them get what they want. If it is a demand that they get their own apartment in Santa Monica and then they become aggressive when they hear this is not possible as they're in spa one and have no history of living in Santa Monica, we can reinforce boundaries by saying that we want to help them find housing and presenting again the options available in their spa. We can become a broken record, but this is actually listed as a technique in de-escalation to reinforce boundaries and set limits. But remember to be kind in your broken record. Tone matters, like we've talked about. Overall, when we encounter someone with this level of chronic anger and instability of mood, this requires a team effort to manage and ensure the safety of our staff and those around the client. It is exhausting if you handle this singularly, and you should lean on your team to try to help the client develop a level of insight into this behavior and how it is helping or hurting them to accomplish their goals. And in that example, it was housing. So de-escalation and agreement. There are three ways to agree with a client that can be helpful in de-escalation. The first is agreeing with the truth. If the client is agitated because they've been kicked out of the shelter for being high and everyone else got high there, I just got caught, we can agree that it is frustrating and scary to lose housing. The second is agreeing in principle. For the agitated client who's complaining that they have been disrespected by the team psychiatrist, you don't have to agree automatically that they're correct. We want to assess each situation, right? But you can agree with them in principle by saying, I believe everyone should be treated respectfully and try to see how you can help them feel respected in future interactions. You may find yourself in a position where you're being asked to agree with a persecutory delusion. In this situation, acknowledging that you have never experienced what the client is experiencing, but that you believe that they are having that experience. Because they are. 
that's what's going on in their mind. Us telling them that it's not happening doesn't help de-escalation. Yet, there are scenarios when the persecutory delusions may involve other team members. And that is where we have to engage in reality testing, even hopefully just when the client is less agitated. So in the end, if there's no way to honestly agree with the client, you can agree to disagree. The most important thing is that you're not dishonest in your agreement. I will say I have agreed. I had clients that had a fixed delusion that she was a CIA agent. And we worked with that delusion because there was, there was no way working with it. It was just totally fixed. And we couldn't accomplish any of her goals without uh, acknowledging that she was busy being a CIA, CIA agent, but that we wanted her to help us do this one chore together today or go to the doctors together to help our facility. So it's like, there, everything's kind of gray, but I would say, David, you can also feel free to chime in that you don't want to agree with their reality directly because it's, it's dishonest, but you're always honest when you're agreeing with whatever emotion they're experiencing underneath that. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, such a difficult situation in that you really don't want to, the word is often collude and I, that has such a negative connotation, but we often don't want to reinforce the, um, uh, the delusion or hallucination. Um, but yes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes there, you can really get at an impasse because the individual is so looking for validation and to be normalized. So being able to ride that fine line can be, again, incredibly difficult. And it may look different in every situation. There may be some times where you just cannot, like you are not able to move forward with an individual until they hear you um, either validate their experience in some way. So again, we would want to do that just exactly as, uh, as you all have been saying, um, to kind of identify the emotion and, and normalize and validate that. You know, the, I've shared this example before. So if any of you have been on trainings with me, I apologize if it's repetitive, but, um, in my, during my time, uh, when I was working in New York city, you know, the, one of the times I had to de-escalate a situation was where somebody was um, was using. Uh, they were pretty high in K two, um, and they had a, a, a history and well, not even history. They were experiencing psychosis, whether it was from K two or whether it was from uh, schizophrenia. I'm sure it was a, a combination of both. But uh, you know, he was you know screaming in my office because he was so so angry that all of the women in the, on his team, it was a similar to FSP team, but an app team. Um, he was telling me that all of the women were, uh, were naked and showing him their, uh, uh, their genitals and breasts. And, um, and, and then there was really no way of, it, it was almost impossible to say, no, that's not true. I can go in there and see that they're clothed. Um, but instead what I tried to do is identify with how frustrating that can be and how uh, offended he might feel. And I also told him that this is, you know, I, you know, I, with him in my office, I, I wrote down some things and said, okay, you know, client is concerned about uh, the dress code of individuals. So he saw that I was in a way addressing it. And 
Um, again, I, I was really trying not to say, oh gosh, you know, you're right. They're not allowed to do that. They need to be punished. Um, but instead it was like, okay, let me, this is such an important concern. I wanna take it seriously. So I'm gonna put this down and then um, once you and I are done meeting, and if we can get to a place where you feel comfortable to leave, this is something I'm absolutely gonna talk with the team about and, and see what we can do, all in very vague terms um, without really verifying or denying that experience. And it, it was successful. Um, it might not work every time though. In that case, that's what seemed to be, that, that's what he needed. He, he didn't need somebody saying, no, that's not true. Everyone's clothed. Are you, did you smoke K2? Or it sounds like you're having a delusion or hallucination like that. That wasn't what he needed in that moment. So um, again, that was an example. It was successful, thank God, at that moment. <laughs> thank you, David. I hope that's a little helpful, Savannah, but it's, it's each scenario, like David said, is so unique. And, and trying to see what's going to help them long-term achieve their goals and maintain stability. So we've touched on limit setting a little in regards to irritable aggression, but in any capacity of de-escalation, limit setting is fundamental to maintaining safety and being clear and direct with our goals and the client's goals and trying to balance that. So setting limits demonstrates your intent and desire to be of help, but reinforces those healthy boundaries that we want to teach all of our clients. So Richmond, the one that wrote this art, big article, recommends sharing with your client what behavior is causing you as a clinician to feel uncomfortable. And if matched with an empathic statement, it can help de-escalate a client. But as we've just touched on, each person is different. And I wouldn't do this with every single client that is agitated, right? If you have a strong relationship with a client with very good rapport and trust, where that's usually there, and even you see it there now in this moment of agitation, it may be a good idea to utilize this. So for example, I know you need to get this anger out but we have to find a different way than screaming into the phone right now. It's really difficult to hear you. And I want to be here for you through this, but I can't help if I don't know what you're saying. Do you mind lowering your voice down a bit? If we cannot calm down over the phone, I'm going to have to come check on you in person. And I know you don't want any visitors today, but I'm beginning to really worry about you. So in that boundary, I'm trying to set of not being yelled at, even though I have been for a little bit already over the phone because I want them to vent away some of their anger. I'm clearly relating it to behavior in this moment, not something from the past at all. We're always focused on the present in de-escalation. I think the requests of not wanting to be yelled at any longer is reasonable and it's presented in a matter of respect with underlying empathy. The consequence of this boundary is that if it's not followed after it's presented and understood by the client, that I have to go out there to de-escalate in person, which the client does not want. So if you can hear them punching and breaking things, for another example, on the phone, we want to identify and confirm that before engaging in limit setting. We don't want to make any assumptions. But if we're in person and we can see these occurrences, 
it's much easier to set a limit of asking them not to break another chair as this is the boarding pairs and we'll together have to find the funds to cover it. And it's starting to scare other residents and we don't want law enforcement to be called and we want to work with them in that moment. So we don't have to call anyone and stopping property destruction usually helps with that. So in a lot of experiences for property destruction, though, it's often pretty brief. It can be extensive, as I'm sure you've all seen. So each situation is unique, but we want to offer alternatives and choices for this behavior, all in the framework of acknowledging their level of skill and ability to regain control of the situation, even if they're high, trying to help them get through to show that you aren't there to shame them for their relapse, but to help them feel safe again. And them destroying chairs isn't going to further that goal. It feels like it will for them. So we have to set a limit and explain why. So if we take that example of property destruction and offering choices, we can see a couple listed here. Can they punch the air? Can they pace? Can they stomp their feet? If your client is actively minded, push-ups are very helpful as well. <laughs> Choice is a source of empowerment for a client, especially that believes physical violence is a necessary response. We have to be quick in our proposal of alternatives. In these choices, offering things that may be perceived as an act of kindness may also be useful. This is hard for those that are high on amphetamines as it can be erratic to know what is useful in that moment. It may be dropping off a warm blanket to get good sleep when they come down from the high because they're gonna be really tired. Or it could be food or beverage as meth withdrawal can cause quite a bit of carb cravings. The choices have to be realistic. I don't want it to appear that we're rewarding someone for being under the influence, but punishment doesn't work with these scenarios. We know this. We don't want to reinforce that shame and guilt that they already feel underneath all that is being presented. We want to facilitate choices that make them feel safe and heard by us. They don't have to be gifts or presents. Just find what works best for you and your team. Above all, Never deceive a client by promising something that cannot be provided. That will break trust for a long time. They will remember that. Be realistic with the client about the likelihood of medical care. If they have physical health conditions, Matthews may exacerbate that. And try to offer choices of where to go to get checked out. Acknowledge that it will take time, probably the day, but that you're going to be there to help them through it. Other times when clients are high and angry, they don't want to talk. So even giving options for what to talk about is a great start. So can you tell me what you're feeling can be one option. What can we do together in this moment? Second option. What do you need in this moment? Third option. And it may be that they want to sit in silence. But if they feel they need to hurt themselves or someone else in this moment, we don't sit with that, right? We take action and we're honest about that as well after we have assessed the intent and plan associated with these concerns. So I have a fun activity for us guys. It's from A&E Intervention. There's not a lot that we um, 
have on the internet to show amphetamine use and psychosis because of obvious concerns for consent. Um, but this is of a woman, Sierra, and her interaction with meth and psychosis. So I'm going to go ahead and play it. And please let me know if you have trouble seeing or hearing it. show that to talk about ways that we could use de-escalation with Sierra. And while you're starting to think, I'm just going to relay some things we saw with the mom, as I know it was a quick clip. Um, she backed away from her with her hands up. So she's showing that she's not trying to be aggressive in any way. She's trying to give her space. Um, the mom was talking over her li a little bit, which isn't a great tactic, but she had the intent of trying to help. She didn't want the cops to be called. She didn't want to agitate her daughter further. She even redirected her pretty well at one point when Sierra said, today is bring a juggalo to Red Lobster. Um, she did saying, we'll talk about that later. And she was trying to focus on establishing a plan, which was important because she didn't want the cops to be called but she was also rushing, which didn't necessarily help Sierra in that moment. So I want to say, what could be done differently in that scenario? So you guys can unmute yourselves. You can type in the chat if there's anything that comes to mind. Well, we could try to identify what Sierra wanted to do next in that moment. Oh, I see we have something in the chat. The mom appeared to be running after her when she asked her not to. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, so we could try to offer her choices in the moment. We could continue to communicate with our body language, some more openness. We could reflect back that she 
appears angry and how we want to help her feel a bit more grounded as we know she's been through a lot and active listening. So there's lots of little things we could do in that moment. Did anyone, oh, Sierra mentioned getting her back, so maybe offering to pick them up for her. Yes, thank you, Shannon, that's a great point. Scott, this is one of these areas where telehealth is a lot harder. I can see Sierra throwing a phone. Yeah, sometimes it's worked when I've sat down on a curb and hoped that the client stays nearby and doesn't feel crowded or chased. Very important to give them space, definitely. We saw that she could be more agitated, but when she backed up and tried to give her more space and our tone matters too, not talking over her, being calm, giving her a moment, right? We might have to give a long bit of a moment in that scenario. Thank you, Scott. Okay. And any underlying mental health concerns you could identify with her outside of this methamphetamine-induced psychosis? She had this statement, she said, of if I don't have it, I'm not going to feel good. If I don't have it, others won't like me. If I don't have it, I'm not cute. If I don't have it, I'm not intelligent. So there's a lot of underlying cognitive distortions there with this all or nothing thinking about what meth provides to her life and all that she thinks she will lose without it. So that's really something important to note for a long-term treatment with Sierra and trying to work through some of those when she's not actively under the influence. So one case study, long case study for you guys. Um, I'm going to read it aloud and then hopefully we can brainstorm some answers together. So Stanley has been enrolled with FSP for two years. He has a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder bipolar type and has a history of extensive trauma from being homeless, including physical and sexual assault. His meth use has been consistent and worsening since you first met him. He was recently placed in a boarding care and has been intermittently attending 12-step meetings. He participates in treatment and takes his medications as prescribed, but when he relapses on a biweekly basis, he becomes agitated and aggressive towards others. This includes both boarding care residents, staff, and members of your FSP team. He has not physically hurt anyone, but he becomes very close in proximity to whoever he is fixated on when under the influence. He doesn't respond to interventions over the phone and a team member routinely must go out to de-escalate. When he is high and psychotic, he presents with persecutory delusions, paranoia, and his instability in mood is very apparent. The delusions tie into his past trauma of assault, so he's extremely on edge to those around him. You and the team have been trying to find a time when he's sober and not in active crisis to talk about his use. Stanley is close to losing housing and there are no other openings for boarding cares in his area. How do you address this cycle of crisis with the client in a recovery oriented way? So I'm gonna give you guys a minute or two. I'm gonna sit with the silence 
And I'm going to give you a minute or two to write some things in the chat or unmute yourselves and share any thoughts you have about Stanley. Louise said, start by asking if there's anything that has been troubling him lately. This is a great open-ended question just to try and see what the situation is at currently. That's great. Thank you. Um, we could ask questions like, oh, some psych meds to reduce his cravings. That's a great idea, Mimi. I would try to work with the client to identify triggers to use as it's happening on a biweekly basis. Also consult with his psychiatrist and board and care to see if meds are being administered correctly. Yes. Great points. Yeah, and these are just some questions that we can try to ask him that are open-ended. We know the housing is important to him. We wanna help him maintain housing. And I think overall, we are trying to be authentic and genuine because what, what's happening isn't working and we wanna find a way that Stanley can help guide us to that is working. Am I motivational interviewing to assess willingness for substance use treatment? Yes, willingness, of course. These are all great things. I don't see your first name, so it's just Didi Hirsch. <laughs> so thank you, Didi Hirsch. These are all really great recommendations. Do you guys often see that you have a lot of clients like this that you're interacting with? Have you found anything to be useful for yourself with clients like this that have these chronic crises with substance use? Doesn't have to be Stanley. You can share a story or a client or an intervention that's been helpful to you as well. Gene, I think I would say like what's been helpful for me and that's coming from a harm reduction perspective, but to make sure I, <clears throat> excuse me, I create a space where where the individual feels safe to talk about crystal meth. And so making sure that um, that I come from a place that's very non-judgmental, as much as I wish that crystal meth wasn't a thing, um, it clearly is. And so I don't want to uh, create a uh, an environment or context of shame or guilt. Because I think that, it, you know, that will... Uh, make it more difficult for him to share um, and to talk about the challenges, but to, again, just be very open and not, not have any judgments about it. Um, and when he's ready, if he, you know, or the individual, whether I'm talking about Stanley or someone else, um, when they view it as a problem and sometimes asking like, oh, it sounds like you, uh, you like to smoke crystal meth, um, you know, what is that experience like for you? Um, as opposed to why do you do that? Or have you ever considered quitting? Um, again, not to, I don't wanna, certainly don't wanna encourage use, but just really wanna make sure that, that the individual feels safe to talk about it. Thank you, David, that's really helpful. And Anita's added in the chat, actively listening, meeting them where their act goes a long way and unconditional positive regard. Yes. Thank you all for sharing. I know it's a really complex issue that doesn't have a lot of easy answers. And we have, as we've seen, so many unique experiences with each individual. So our last piece 
is to talk about what if nothing matters. Oh, Ren, thank you, Ren. Support groups for clients, definitely helpful. Yes, it can be. I know there's smart recoveries and alternative to 12 steps if they don't like 12 steps. There's lots of different sort of support groups, even, you know, a DBT support group to help with distress tolerance if they have that to get through the cravings. So what if nothing matters? Um, there are scenarios that I've personally encountered where there are those that say they have no reason to be sober. And this ambivalence may have been related to a low importance for change or low confidence in their ability to change. Some clients can be fearful of success, especially when working with our teams because they don't wanna lose their treatment team if they don't do too well. And they can become very attached and not feel a strong sense of identity without it. And we have to stay there with them and help them to show all they're capable with without us building a fuller life than just our team. But sometimes I've had to watch clients get sicker and sicker until we're able to hospitalize them because the meth use gets to a point where the meds don't work anymore and the psychosis is so bad that they're 51-50. And then that becomes a starting point. Stephen Hayes, who developed acceptance and commitment therapy, coined the term cognitive fusion to describe times when we are so tightly stuck in our thoughts, we become quote unquote fused to them. And I think this is really helpful for clients when we're working with chronic crises and things like this. When we're experiencing cognitive fusion, we don't separate ourselves from our thoughts. Our thoughts become our reality. We're removed from the outside world, outside of our thoughts. We're removed from our senses, from what we're doing, and even from the people around us. We fuse with our angry thoughts. We act aggressively. We fuse with anxious thoughts. We act fearfully. We fuse with urges, and we do what they say. And just like uh, one of you touched on, we have to have willingness to just have our thoughts and feelings. The opposite of cognitive fusion is cognitive diffusion, which involves taking a step back from what's going on in our minds and detaching from our thoughts just a little bit. In this state of diffusion, we can observe our thoughts and our processes internally without getting lost in them, stuck or fused with them. We can simply notice our thoughts, watch them, accept them, but not agree with them, and even let them go if we choose to. Overall, we want the flexibility to work with our thoughts, to see them as how helpful our thoughts may be rather than how true or false, positive or negative. That is the purpose of cognitive diffusion. And these concepts can serve as ways to reflect with the client after the crisis, to help them become aware of their thoughts and emotions, which drugs so easily numb or can dismiss. And there's a lot of work to be done even before you come to broach the topic of cognitive diffusion or fusion, because we have to work on that psychoeducation of thoughts and emotions. So there's a level of understanding before we go into these concepts. There will be those that present themselves to you by saying they care about nothing, but they called you on the phone. They want to talk to you. 
Same for if they're high on meth and don't want to work on their sobriety, but they're still on your treatment team. If they're on the phone with you, or if they're honest or not even being honest about their use, they're still in treatment with you. And it may feel not like real treatment or active treatment, but for them, it's a starting point. So on that level, if they're participating even a smidge or they haven't closed out, their well-being matters to them on some level, and we can work with that. I have a resource at the end that is full of free ACT worksheets and PDF mini guides um, from the book Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Made made Simple, the second edition. Somehow it's free online. Um, The book has some helpful tidbits as well, but as you can see, it's very adaptable for people that are open to mindfulness and open to these concepts and really breaking down these concepts in ways that are easily understood. I know that methamphetamine and psychosis is an area where there needs to be a great deal more training, research, and acknowledgement by the community of the limitations of the system and the pressures that this puts on clinicians to fill the gaps that are frankly unsafe a lot of the time. Remember that there is no clear successful intervention to be had when working with meth and psychosis. Still, I hope that some of these de-escalation tools can be helpful over the phone or in person, but that you continue to prioritize the safety of you and your team and balancing that with the client's needs. You're still doing phenomenal work that doesn't get recognized enough. And I just really love this quote. It doesn't necessarily fit right here, but I love it. (laughs) It's good for us as clinicians. It's good for clients. Anyone that's experienced 2020, if you're not familiar, Kubler-Ross was known for her work on grief and loss and came up with those five stages of grief that we've learned about. So the most beautiful people we've known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of a life that fills them with compassion gentleness, and a deep loving concern. And I want you all to remember that you are the guides for these beautiful people. And I know that may be a little too dirty, happy, but you'll have to excuse it today. The other topic we're going to talk about today are panic attacks. Uh, Very Well Mind is an excellent website for understanding mental health symptoms and concerns. Even if you're not a clinician, it's very easily digestible for all walks of life, and their graphics are really amazing. From this particular graphic, it details the overlap between anxiety and panic. So you may lose sleep because of anxiety. You may have muscle tension or irritability. Those don't really overlap with a panic attack. The increased heart rate and shortness of breath do overlap with a panic attack, but a panic attack has that chest pain, shaking, trembling, and feeling disconnected from yourself or your surroundings that is not characteristic of anxiety alone. The key difference being that anxiety is built up and panic attacks are sudden. And panic attacks can be associated with a multitude of mental health disorders. As for panic attacks and telehealth, there was a study in 2008 that tried to see if internet-based 
cognitive behavioral therapy for panic disorder and agoraphobia was as effective as face-to-face cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was. The internet portion was interactive modules, activities, and emails with a therapist. Participants rated both treatment conditions as equally credible and satisfying. Overall, this was not done with the severely or seriously mentally ill population that most of us have worked with, but panic attacks can impact a variety of mental health concerns. So it's important to note that treatment can be impactful regardless. So one more fun video, because why not, um, that I'm going to share. And I know we've all seen TED Talks, but there is this wonderful thing that um, called TED Ed that has these really nice animations that I think you could even use with, with clients. And this one details what goes on in a panic attack. Gravity soars to a terrifying height. The outlines of people and things dissolve. Countless poets and writers have tried to put words to the experience of a panic attack. A sensation so overwhelming, many people mistake it for a heart attack, stroke, or other life-threatening crisis. Though panic attacks don't cause long-term physical harm, afterwards, the fear of another attack can limit someone's daily life and cause more panic attacks. Studies suggest that almost a third of us will experience at least one panic attack in our lives. And whether it's your first, your hundredth, or you're witnessing someone else go through one, no one wants to repeat the experience. Even learning about them can be uncomfortable, but it's necessary because the first step to preventing panic attacks is understanding them. At its core, a panic attack is an overreaction to the body's normal physiological response to the perception of danger. This response starts with the amygdala, the brain region involved in processing fear. When the amygdala perceives danger, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which triggers the release of adrenaline. Adrenaline prompts an increase in the heart and breathing rate to get blood and oxygen to the muscles of the arms and legs. This also sends oxygen to the brain, making it more alert and responsive. During a panic attack, this response is exaggerated well past what would be useful in a dangerous situation, causing a racing heart, heavy breathing, or hyperventilation. The changes to blood flow cause lightheadedness and numbness in the hands and feet. A panic attack usually peaks within 10 minutes. Then the prefrontal cortex takes over from the amygdala and stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. This triggers the release of a hormone called acetylcholine that decreases the heart rate and gradually winds down the panic attack. In a panic attack, the body's perception of danger is enough to trigger the response we would have to a real threat, and then some. We don't know for sure why this happens, but sometimes cues in the environment that remind us of traumatic past experience can trigger a panic attack. Panic attacks can be part of anxiety disorders like PTSD, social anxiety disorder, OCD, and generalized anxiety disorder. Recurring panic attacks, frequent worry about new attacks, and behavioral changes to avoid panic attacks can lead to a diagnosis of a panic disorder. The two main treatments for panic disorder are antidepressant medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. 
both have about a 40% response rate, though someone who responds to one may not respond to the other. However, antidepressant medications carry some side effects, and 50% of people relapse when they stop taking them. CBT, meanwhile, is more lasting, with only a 20% relapse rate. The goal of CBT treatment for panic disorder is to help people learn and practice concrete tools to exert physical and, in turn, mental control over the sensations and thoughts associated with a panic attack. CBT begins with an explanation of the physiological causes of a panic attack, followed by breath and muscle exercises designed to help people consciously control breathing patterns. Next comes cognitive restructuring, which involves identifying and changing the thoughts that are common during attacks, such as believing you'll stop breathing, have a heart attack or die, and replacing them with more accurate thoughts. The next stage of treatment is exposure to the bodily sensations and situations that typically trigger a panic attack. The goal is to change the belief through experience that these sensations and situations are dangerous. Even after CBT, taking these steps isn't easy in the grip of an attack. But with practice, these tools can both prevent and de-escalate attacks and ultimately reduce the hold of panic on a person's life. Outside formal therapy, many panickers find relief from the same beliefs CBT aims to instill, that fear can't hurt you, but holding onto it will escalate panic. Even if you've never had a panic attack, understanding them will help you identify one in yourself or someone else, and recognizing them is the first step in preventing them. So, now that we've learned about panic attacks a little more and the biology behind, we'll go into the stages of panic attacks. The first phase is initiating circumstances, and that can be internal or external. The second phase is an increase in bodily symptoms, usually unusual or unpleasant bodily symptoms. That's where those heart palpitations shortness of breath, faintness, or dizziness, even sweating occur. And then the next phase is internalization. That means there's an increased focus on symptoms that make them more noticeable and easily magnified. Phase four is a catastrophic interpretation, which is telling yourself that a symptom is dangerous. Like I'll have a heart attack or I'll suffocate, or I'm gonna go totally crazy. And phase five is when the panic attack ensues. So as that video touched upon, the first step in learning to cope with panic attacks is to recognize that the bodily reactions are not dangerous. Because the bodily reactions accompanying panic feel so intense, it's easy to imagine them as dangerous. Yet in reality, no danger exists. The physiological reactions underlying panic are natural and protective. Your body is designed to panic so that you can quickly mobilize to flee situations that genuinely threaten your survival. So I like to use humor and say that they've just evolved really well <laughs> for clients that have anxiety and panic attacks. 
And so here are some common thoughts associated with the bodily reactions that often accompany a panic attack. You can take a look to read them over. I'm not gonna read each of them over. I'm gonna have a sip of water, but please let me know if you have any questions so far or comments. Okay, so many of you are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy where we examine the evidence for and against a thought. We can put that thought on trial and this is what we need to do with panic attacks and the negative catastrophic thoughts it creates. We have to challenge them together with the client. So it has been demonstrated that during a panic attack, there are no EKG abnormalities, only a rapid heartbeat. Obviously, this does not apply if your client has underlying physical health conditions, a cardiac history, high blood pressure, asthma, you want to get all that checked out. For choking sensations, your brain has a built-in reflex mechanism that will eventually force you to breathe if you're not getting enough oxygen. If you don't believe this, you can try holding your breath for up to a minute and observe what happens. Obviously not during a panic attack, but as a piece of psychoeducation. Um, the sensation of lightheadedness you may feel with the onset of panic can evoke a fear of fainting. What is happening is that the blood circulation to your brain is slightly reduced, most likely because you are breathing more rapidly. This is not dangerous and can be relieved by breathing slowly and regularly from your abdomen, preferably through your nose. It can also be helped by taking the first opportunity you have to walk around. Let the feelings of lightheadedness rise and subside without fighting them. Because your heart is pumping harder and actually increasing your circulation, you are very unlikely to faint, except in those instances where you have a blood phobia and are exposed to the side of blood. The adrenaline released during a panic attack can dilate the blood vessels in your legs, causing blood to accumulate in your leg muscles and not fully circulate. So this produces that weakness in the legs, the jelly legs, to which you may have a fear that you won't be able to walk. But we have to remember that this is just a sensation and that your legs are strong and will be able to carry you and allowing those trembling, weak sensations to pass will give you the chance to have your legs carry you where you need to go. And the way of introducing this psychoeducation is through validation, which is pretty much the core concept of this whole training. We wanna build awareness of what is happening. We don't wanna deny what is happening to them. So what can you do in the midst of a panic attack? How can you help your client? If the panic attacks are triggered by external cues, like an interaction with someone or an environment that causes panic, you wanna to try to remove yourself from the situation if possible. It is the hardest thing to do in a panic attack, but the goal is that we try not to fight the panic attacks as it only worsens them. And it may be if you're on the phone with a client, you wanna validate how frightening and awful this must feel, but that you're here with them, that they're going to live and that you're going to get through this together. We want to orient the client to their surroundings as they can feel disconnected to their surroundings, which 
increases panic. Encouraging them to touch the floor, touch physical objects around them or ground themselves in some way. Even asking them to describe their surroundings in one word answers. You can encourage them to feel their toes touching the ground. I think it may be a tradition in lots of our trainings to mention the 54321 grounding method, but it's also very useful. Um, I won't go through it here, but I encourage you to look it up as it is perfect for um, using with panic attacks and high levels of anxiety. Uh, if they can pound their fists, clap their hands, scream or cry, great. We want them to release tension in their body. Movement, something physical, helps reduce the adrenaline created by this fight or flight reaction that comes with a panic attack. We wanna move with this adrenaline. We wanna use it to be active. So if they're not feeling dizzy, we want them to breathe and move. Breathe and move. I will acknowledge people don't really like it when you tell them to breathe during a panic attack, but it does work. It always works. So maybe being strategic when you bring it up in the moment, maybe doing two things with them and then asking them to breathe with you. I am a firm believer that doing activities with the client can be centering and grounding and reinforce that you are on the same team. And finally, saying something nice to yourself as you breathe is very soothing. Coping thoughts can be very similar to saying something nice to yourself as you breathe. You can help your client to come up with their own coping thoughts. I find that shorter is better, but if they can remember the longer ones, great. These are from the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. They really should be a frame of reference to help your client build their own unique coping thought to help them get through the panic attack. These can be used at the start when they're beginning to feel the symptoms of panic coming on. If one thought doesn't work, write a backup thought. Help your client write down a couple in their phone or on an index card they can carry with them in their wallet or in their back pocket. And they can look to it and say it to themselves in these moments. Writing doesn't get enough credit. Um, I encourage you all to see uh, David's training on problem-solving therapy. He talked about externalization and how writing externalizes overwhelming feelings. And by externalizing, we can help reduce the impact of these feelings. So in the same way, if we externalize positive coping thoughts, I believe we can reinforce the strength of these words in action. For the long term, we want to help our clients develop an ability to ask themselves questions when they begin to notice the stages of the panic attack. These are questions for the client to ask themselves if they are able to in the moments leading up to the panic attack. And if they cannot and they call us in crisis, we can ask them and we can listen for an answer. But we wanna shift these, right? Some of these aren't just the, they can appear a little condescending if they're not asking them themselves the question. So what is the most supportive thing I could do for myself right now is, is a great question. And if we're asking it, we can say, how can I be of support to you in this moment? What is the absolute worst thing that could happen? If you've talked about psychoeducation and have great rapport, you can ask this. 
But I try to reframe, reframe it positively because we don't want to dismiss their feelings or experiences. You can once again reinforce acknowledgement of those feelings of fear that they can't catch their breath right now, but that they won't die from this, that you'll get through this, that they're resilient and trying to refer them to some grounding to do together in that moment. Are these symptoms I'm feeling dangerous? This is putting the thought on trial, which we may or may not wanna do, but let's say they're panicking about the coronavirus. They feel that they're in danger of it and helpless in that moment. You can reflect that that fear is with a lot of us right now and it's valid, but you in this moment of panic are more powerful than the fear of this virus and asking them to breathe with you, placing their hands over their mouth, which helps us to get more airflow into our lungs. You're imagining your hands as a paper bag and just breathing. Am I telling myself anything that is making this worse? If we're asking the client this question directly, we can say, what can you tell yourself to make yourself feel a little better in this moment? And we may have to be that persistent voice of reason saying how they have survived this before. They will survive this too and we will make it through it together, all within the lens of validation. So breath work and panic attacks. Fun fact, if you're an anxious breather, you breathe too high up in your chest, and often your breathing can be shallow in nature. And then when we hyperventilate, you breathe out too much carbon dioxide relative to the amount of oxygen in your bloodstream. So shallow chest level breathing when rapid can lead to hyperventilation and hyperventilation can lead to these physical symptoms that are associated with panic attacks. Breathing slowly from your abdomen can help reduce the bodily symptoms of a panic attack in either of two ways. So by slowing down your breath and breathing from your abdomen, you can reverse two of the reactions associated with the fight or flight response. You can reduce that rate of respiration and you can reduce that constriction of your chest wall muscles. After three to four minutes of slow, regular abdominal breathing, you are likely to feel that you have slowed down this runaway reaction that can cause a panic attack. Slow abdominal breathing, especially when done through the nose, can reduce symptoms of hyperventilation that can aggravate a panic attack the dizziness, disorientation, and tingly sensations are produced by this rapid, shallow chest level breathing. And three to four minutes of this abdominal breathing can help reverse this process. And I hope that this is useful and that we can provide psychoeducation about the biology of the breath. And if they aren't interested in that, we can breathe with them and show them directly if they're open to this intervention after they've had a panic attack, probably not in the moment unless they're open to breathing. And then 100%, this is the best intervention to use. So I'm going to dive in to breathworks and panic attacks a little deeper. The traditional remedy for hyperventilation is to breathe into a paper bag, also known as rebreathing. Um, another effective way is abdominal breathing and calming breath. I was gonna try to make us do them together, 
Um, but we are running out of time and I have more things to get through. So I'll just say that for abdominal breathing, and I'll post this when we have it's posted so you can have these interactions as well. If you're placing one hand on your abdomen and you're inhaling to a count of four through your nose, pausing and exhaling to a count of four. So inhale, count of four, pause, exhale, count of four. And the goal is that you do this 10 times with slow, regular breaths, not gulping the air, and it can help calm down this reaction. If you feel that you're getting dizzy when doing this or the client's expressing that, you wanna pause for about 15 or 30 seconds and you can resume safely. Calming breath exercise is from yoga and it's similar, but you're breathing from your abdomen yet again, but you're breathing inhale to a count of five. You're pausing and holding your breath for a count of five. And then you're exhaling slowly to a count of five. So it's a little more intense than the abdominal breathing. So we're inhaling to a count of five, pausing for a count of five, and exhaling for a count of five. And then after you've done that, you're trying to take two regular breaths. So I'll say it one more time in case anyone wants to write it down and I'll make sure to post it is inhaling to a count of five, pausing for a count of five, exhaling for a count of five, and then two regular breaths and doing that 10 times as well. And during any of this breath work, there's nothing wrong with having a grounding word or positive statement like safe, calm, peace that you can say when you practice. All of this should be done with three to five minutes and can be extremely effective for panic attacks. So let's put what we've learned to use. How can we help Lizeth through her panic attack? So you're having a routine telehealth phone call session with Lizeth who has bipolar two disorder. She began her sobriety from alcohol right before the pandemic. She is not presented with any fears or panic thus far around COVID-19, but recently had a family member she doesn't live with test positive. She begins talking about her concerns for COVID for the winter and begins to hyperventilate on the phone. She states she really wants a drink right now. What do you do next as her clinician? So we could try to guide her through breathing, but let's say she says, I am breathing. Does anyone have any ideas of what we could do with her next? Some grounding run? Yes, thank you. Definitely. Trying to maybe accompany that grounding with a coping thought. The five senses exercise? Yes, great, Liz. Focusing on an object? Yes, thank you, Anita. Great recommendations. Focus on an object, yep. So once she's in a state of calm, let's say, what are we going to do to try to help her manage her cravings to drink? I think we want to acknowledge and express gratitude for her being open and sharing that with us and seeing how we can be of support. 
finding ways to distract from cravings is a really good, easy way to start. Yes, calling a sponsor if she has a sponsor, definitely meetings if she goes to meetings. I know a lot of people are working through books if they're going to meetings and have a sponsor. So referring to text that is helpful, talking about that further with them. Socializing with sober people over Zoom or talking to sober support over the phone. Roxanne, identify other harm reduction items she can substitute for active drinking. Yes, yes. Have some sugar. We used to have a lot of like lollipops and candy for our clients to kind of help with those cravings. It may seem small, but it, it did help for when, you know, in the moment. Um, and I just discovered a fun acronym that I wanted to incorporate, but doesn't necessarily <laughs> incorporate here, but it's HALT. It's from 12 Steps. It's Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. I think it's a really useful thing that we could use with clients to check in even not about sobriety necessarily, but also if they're going to have a really intense emotional reaction, taking a moment and seeing if they're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. This can be very helpful for cravings or for just snapping at people too. So long-term interventions for panic attacks, panic attacks that I can speak to outside of medication because I'm not a psychiatrist, is a regular practice of mindfulness or relaxation, exercising, trying to reduce stimulants like caffeine, sugar, nicotine, learning to acknowledge and express their emotions so they don't get so overwhelming that they create panic, shifting our self-talk to one that is more positive, and working through any negative core beliefs that really underline that negative self-talk. An example of negative core beliefs, if you're not familiar, for people in relationships, a common one for men is to think, I am not enough, and for women to think, I am too much in heterosexual partnerships. So overall, I think as humans, we ourselves are working on a number of these issues in our daily lives. Recognizing this can help center us with our clients as good things take time, dedication, patience, and often believing in our clients when they struggle to believe in themselves and the changes we know they are capable of. So I want to take the last few minutes to talk about reflecting on a crisis. It's important that after a crisis of any kind, panic attacks, substance use, psychosis, we want to engage in a process of reflection. A crisis can often have two dimensions, this existential personal dimension and a contextual or social dimension. We want to try to find resolution in one of these areas, which is not often possible as there are major losses associated with crisis. Communication of feelings after a crisis is very beneficial as there are really complicated beliefs wrapped up in a crisis. Even if they can't identify emotions, pain is a communicator we can identify with the feeling of pain. They may have felt totally out of control or in total darkness or felt so very alone. Acknowledging, validating, and trying to resolve these emotions with time and discussion is helpful to try to see what we can help deter 
those same intense emotions from coming up as swiftly in the future. For many in a crisis, withdrawal may be seen as a protective strategy, but engagement helps them get out of a crisis. So discussing this paradoxical influence of these two things can be very helpful. We want them to protect themselves, but we also want them to reach out for support. I like to personally acknowledge and highlight their independence and their strength of, and resilience for trying to handle things on their own. But I will say that no man or person is an island and the most dynamic civilizations were built on community and support of one another. And it's difficult for anyone to admit they need help, but that in itself takes strength. Crisis in severe mental illness is not linear. It's not a single event a lot of the time that happens at once and is definitive. One can move in and out of crisis situations. They may happen again and again throughout their life, even with their best efforts. Hopefully with time, we can help to identify how to anticipate those experiences. We've talked about identifying triggers for substance use, but it's the same thing with mania and psychosis, right? Fasting, stress, lack of sleep, loss, warning signs to when someone is slipping into a deep depression, starting to isolate, sleep a lot, helping our clients to notice these changes. And even if there are not obvious triggers, things can happen so quickly, so reactively, that they don't have any awareness of what's happening, what emotion it is, it's just blank. And then they go into crisis. And perhaps from there, there's a starting point of talking about the bodily reactions. Perhaps they can notice that they tense their fists or clench their jaw before they snap at someone and throw a punch. And hopefully when we develop that physical awareness, we can dig into the thoughts that snowball into crisis. And that's where the real work comes in. It takes a great deal of effort, psychoeducation, from physical awareness to understanding emotions and agreeing to identify with them in the first place. And hopefully from these reflections, we can help them gain a sense of control, further build upon their hope and trust in themselves and enhance their social connections to support in future crises. The last tool that can be helpful for reflection after a crisis is associated with acceptance and commitment therapy. It's the life compass. And this can be seen as a major task and ask, especially for our more severe clients but it can be broken down. You don't have to go over all these boxes with them. You can have conversations with them when they're not in crisis about what is guiding them. What's their purpose? What's their interest? What makes them feel okay? And how does that relate in how they clarify and move on from the crisis? And these are a lot of different domains that can be a topic of conversation education can be learning about subjects, watching documentary, not everyone has to go to school. And even the most, you know, very psychotic clients I've had, they've all had dreams, they've all had goals. 
and they've fallen into one or many of these domains. Yes, maybe some of them weren't based in reality, but they all had a desire to achieve something. So thinking again of what sort of person they want to be, what strengths and qualities do they have? What is important and of value to them going forward? And that resource that you'll see very soon has handouts that are like this. And hopefully this can be, use of you, be of use to you with your clients in some capacity when we can adapt it. So no matter the client, the level of functioning, I think this quote is true and we can hopefully help them find it with reflection, with building their skills, their understanding of their own mental health and empowering them to continue to build a life worth living. So in times of crisis, people reach for meaning. Meaning is strength. Our survival may depend on our speaking and finding it. So with that, that is the extent of our training. These are the resources and this will be posted to um, our website. So you'll have access to all these. Um, there's a psychotherapy for methamphetamine independence. Australia has excellent mental health resources. It's like an 80 page booklet with MI stuff, um, the ACMATE simple handouts and some guidelines for building rapport with adults via telehealth. If you're interested in any of the research I've talked about or books, they're all here in the references. 